exciting, Jim. But not as we know it. This is big. This is Bashcast, episode number... One, eight, two. It is 23 minutes past 1pm on Thursday the 25th of November 2021. This afternoon's Bashcast. We talk to betting analyst and author Joseph Buckdahl about his new book, Monte Carlo or Bust Simple Simulations for Aspiring Sports Bettors. And I won't lie, that's about it because look, the plan was to chat to Joseph for 20 minutes and then do 20 minutes on an unlikely frequency of goals that happened in the World Cup qualifiers and some value that was around for them. I want a bit of money. I ended up chatting to Joseph for about an hour and um, I think it was a good chat as well. So the World Cup qualifying results will just have to wait until another episode. Are you a big Christmas person, or is it more a bit of a bar humbug period of time coming up for you? I'm completely neutral. I'm I'm neither proactive nor proactive against Christmas, so it kind of just leaves me just feeling a bit bored by the whole thing. I think my favourite aspect of Christmas is midnight on the 26th when the the Melbourne Test match cricket starts. Um, So I just settle down to that, and it's like, thank God that's all over, and now I can watch some cricket and fall asleep. Full stadium, but zero Brits this year, unless the Brits are over in Australia. That's what I heard. It won't make any difference. They're going to get smashed up anyway, so you know it's irrelevant. I don't mean the Australians. I mean the the English. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be a very one-sided affair. Do you expect? Oh, it's five nil. Five nil all over. I think. <laughs> okay, I'm noting that down. Five nil. I'm going to have a research for top odds on that. I think I've got um three issues with it. First of all, the the amount that we drink and we eat means that we should be you know, 
dropping down calorie intake in November, and that makes my November stressful, to tell you the truth, because I never think I've uh, I've dropped it enough. Um, secondly, I'd put it into legislation that you wouldn't be able to play a Christmas song more than once in a shopping centre over the entire period. And uh, thirdly, roast turkey isn't even in the top 100 meals, as far as I'm concerned. So I'm with you. I'm looking forward to uh, Boxing Day, the start of the cricket, and, uh, and the Aussie Open coming up. Yeah. Um, Monte Carlo or Bust, um, uh, which was, uh, it, it's available sort of, I think, um, at the beginning of December through Amazon on the Kindle, is that it's, right? It's, it's, the publishers said because of the transportation issues that have arisen post-pandemic, um, they anticipated delays. So the main rollout of the various um, global bookstores, Amazon and Google, and then obviously the UK retailers, Waterstones and and the like. They, I think they they said it's second of December, but it allowed the publisher to do a pre-release um, sale through their own online shop, which has been going for the last four weeks or so, three or four weeks. Uh, which I guess I don't know whether that was intentional on their part, but either way, um, it's been out with, through them only for the last few weeks, and it will be out in more general release from I think it's second of December. That's high stakes publishing, right? Yeah, the one that's it's, that's the that's the they're they're the publishers of the book. Yeah, high stakes publishing. They're they're kind of part of a wider group known as I think it's Old Castle Books. Yeah, yeah, that's what I found when I googled it. And it's always sort of nice to sort of go straight to someone instead of via Amazon. I find as well, right? So um, yeah, I guess <laughs> I guess it allows you to get it earlier in this case. So the books. Well, I think I'll come to what I think the philosophy of your book uh, was. A little bit later, but it starts off, and the title is about the Monte Carlo Casino uh, on August the eighteenth, nineteen thirteen. What happened then? Oh, blimey! Twenty six consecutive colours. I can't remember which one it is. Was it black? Do you remember? Um, um, the roulette wheel. Uh, it, it was. Uh, it was. It was black. You're right. Yes, black, black. twenty six yeah. times in a row. And of course, people were were fooled by the gambler's fallacy, or what's also come known as the Monte Carlo fallacy, because that's where it took place, where they believed that if so many are coming up consecutively, it kind of it's putting too much weight on that colour. So, by law of averages, as people interpret it, it's going to have to go um, to the opposite colour coming forward, going forward. So they, they, there were more and more money being being bet on on the opposite colour, and of course, it didn't happen just by pure chance. We know that it is a fallacy. So roulette spins don't have memories. So um, it's the same probability regardless of what's happened before. Um, and that allowed the casinos to make a lot of money. So, yeah, 26. I mean, this is the same kind of theory. Consecutive. Yeah, I mean, Sorry, um, uh, if it was 50-50, that's somewhere in the region of Excel's telling me now, um, 67 million to one. But um, it's not quite. It's it was, 30, I think. It's 1837, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know at the time. Yeah, I presume it would have been the European roulette wheel, so 37. Um, what was it? Uh, yeah, something like that. I think maybe if it had been an American wheel, it would have been in the billions, possibly. I don't know. I mean, it's not the record. Yeah. I think I, I I did find a story of, of um, I think, was it 32 reds in a row? Um, and, I, and I think for my last book, actually, I just did a little bit of back of the envelope thinking about this and thinking how many roulette wheels 
are, are spinning in the world and how long will they be spinning for what's how many casinos there are in the world and so on this is excluding online casinos i guess and and i kind of came up with a figure that has probably been a 35 somewhere in the world in the last 100 years but of course it's not documented right okay so statistically if we sort of you, you, did you actually make an effort to estimate number of casinos in the world, number of roulette tables yeah, per casino? That's right. Yeah. How, how how many hours per night or day it was spinning, and how many how many tables there are in a particular casino? It was just like back of the envelope averages I was just doing, and just to see what number you would come up with, and and then you just go, well, so what's a fifty fifty chance that you'd see one of those sequences? And and it was about thirty five, I think, for memory. It's in the last book anyway. I can't remember the exact figure, but it was higher than the the recorded one in in the states which i think was 1942 or something like that somewhere i don't i don't know if it was las vegas i can't remember but it's it's it might be in monte carlo book as well i can't remember but it's in it's in the first few pages yeah and at some point even as a mathematician you've got to be standing there thinking is is this a biased wheel is there something going on where it's falling yeah. on certain numbers more often than others easy to do i mean you can easily if your people are fooled by patterns so if you see something um you're going to start thinking is there a cause by it but of course, we're, we're easy to be fooled by a pattern of 20 consecutive blacks or reds. Um, it's just as likely you're going to see a random collection of blacks and reds in 20 spins, but it doesn't look like a pattern. So we don't start looking for causes for it. Gambler's fallacy is interesting. When you see it up and down the country when you go into betting shops. And I think there's a, someone may have, because they were so close in the last race, they probably in the horse race. They probably think they have more of a chance in the next race because how can they be that unlucky twice in a row? Yeah, it's the near. I guess is it maybe it's called the near miss fallacy. I don't know if it's got an official name, but obviously it affects mm -hmm. people who play slots that get one or one out, and obviously people who bet on accumulators if they get one wrong, they think, oh, I, I was that close. But of course, in yeah. reality, it's a failed bet. You've lost. It makes it's irrelevant whether you've had. Oh. Say you bet a, a fivefold and it's. Um, and four of one or, or one of one or none of one. It's irrelevant. You've lost the bet and that's the end of it. In fact, not only is it irrelevant, I think um, if you look at the permutations of um, your accumulator, you're far more likely to be one off than you are to have completed them all, aren't you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's yeah. a combination. You just do a, yeah, N NCR, isn't it? In mathematical speak, you, it's just binomial. Yeah, you're far more likely to be one off. Uh, depending on how the size of the accumulator, it, it could be dramatically different. There's an interesting thing I saw as well about um, there was a psychology report um, where they asked a bunch of young children, you know, um, it's it's been heads five times in a row. Do you think it's going to be tails next time? And the majority of them said, yes, uh, of course, it has to be tails next time if it's been fi uh, heads five times in a row. And they tested children as they got older. And there's actually a relationship between as children get older the number that think that the universe owes a debt to what happened previously drops, but then it gets to about 15% and never goes any lower. Um, and possibly that 15% of people are more at high risk of becoming sort of, you know, um, addicted gamblers or people that probably need a little bit of help and so on and so forth. Yeah, well, that's uh, interesting. I've not come across that, but it's, it suggests yeah. there may be some kind of hard wiring, uh, whether it's learned, whether it's genetic, um, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting thing. I mean, maybe it, it, you wonder where, then whether though that sort of disposition to that kind of thinking correlates in some way with other types of of um, thinking, like conspiracy, for example, where people just are insisting on looking for 
um, agency behind things that happen in the world and 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 causation. Um, yes, yeah, searching for meaning. A lot of the time, these things are just random, aren't they? But but so mm -hmm. often we demand an explanation for why something has happened, and maybe mm -hmm. some people are are more disposed to demanding those explanations and are less happy with a, a, a random explanation. I probably shouldn't call it an explanation because randomness is not causal. But so. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it'd be something that'd be worth looking at, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not a psychologist or a scientist in that field. But it'd be something well worth exploring if it hasn't been done already. But you did at some point in the past sit down and look at the function rand bracket bracket in Excel, and you had the thought, I could write a book about that. Um, that feels quite ballsy to me. Um, that one, you know, you'd get a book out of that, and two, that. It would be interesting enough to people for people to read. Where were you? We came up with the concept, and what was it that you were trying to do? Oh, uh, you're right. When I when I thought about this and thought, can I really write a book about using the random function in Excel? I mean, is this going to just send people to sleep? But I guess I probably started from the point of view is that in the work I've done before, the, the books I've done before, I've never properly, I don't think. Um, tried to cover the topic of variance and why not understanding variance and and randomness and chance in betting is ultimately going to destroy the chances of those that even might have some expected value. Um, and I realized that the, the easiest way to make it kind of sensible or, or easy to understand without necessarily having to, to, to understand all the maths behind it and there's a bit, bit of math or quite a bit of maths and equations in the book but I've always said throughout it doesn't matter if you don't get it or if this puts you off just so long as you understand the nuts and bolts of what the Monte Carlo simulation is doing then you're fine and so I did that because it was basically the easiest way to um sorry that was my son just interrupted me you might have to do an edit there yeah, no problem. Um, it was yeah the easiest way to um, convey the topic of variance without having to do too much maths, I guess. Um, and it was a it was a thing that you that people who've got Excel and most people do have Excel if they've got Microsoft Windows, they can always get a handle. They probably used it at school or college, or even if they haven't, it's going to be sitting there in some form on their computer, possibly. Um, and it's probably the easiest package to use where you can do this kind of random analysis easily without having to know any programming. So it kind of, and I've been using it quite a lot just to do various stuff that I've done over the years and also writing my articles and so on. And it just kind of made sense that this is the easiest way to do it and also allowed me to do a fancy name for a book as well. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I've used Excel for everything from planning Christmas parties to um, in an old job. I, I was an engineer that would forecast condition models and Excel, the perfect tool for that. It, it seems to do everything. But um, for um, Monte Carlo analysis, you touched on, for anyone that doesn't know what a Monte Carlo analysis is, what is it? Sure. I get asked this. Uh, it's quite hard to put it into words. I suppose the simplest way is to describe a a system where you wouldn't need to use it so for example tossing coins say you toss it a hundred times or say let's say you toss it 20 times and you want to know how many times you're going to see heads and tails um so you, you toss it 20 times and then you count the number of heads and you count the number of tails and 
you then go, okay, well, so I saw eight heads and 12 tails. Um, let's do it again and see how many times I get heads and tails. And then, so you repeat that, tossing 20 times, many hundreds or thousands of times. And you then count the number of times you see one head, two head, three heads, and so on, all the way up to, to 20 heads and, and zero tails. Now, of course, with coin tossing, there's a mathematical function to describe this, so you wouldn't need to use the Monte Carlo. You just go to the binomial theorem, and you can just do the maths if you know how to do the maths, and it will give you the answers. But if you can't do the maths, you then you you do it by by oh, what's the what's the word by um, I can't think of the word. Just by, basically by by hard effort, brute, um, brute force, brute force. That's it. By just but you yeah. force it by brute force, and so you run it hundreds and thousands or even millions of times and you just literally count what you see and mm -hmm. that from the counting then gives you the distribution of possibilities or probabilities um so of course with coin tossing you don't have to do that because there's binomial mathematics you use it more readily where the maths is too difficult um it may be too difficult for everybody or more usually it's too diff difficult for me there, there will be like for example i think in the book i I did the penalty shootout example. Now, I've no doubt there, there, there'll be a mathematical explanation, but it's too difficult for me to get my head round or even start to develop it in, on paper. So I just thought, right, let's just throw the Monte Carlo at it. Let's put in the parameters. So we, we say it's 72% chance that a player will score a penalty. I want to know how often a penalty shootout will end up being sudden death. And you just you know, put in those inputs, run the model, and then count what happens, and it's as it's as simple as that. So it's a really, it's a it's a very intuitive way of doing something if you can't figure out the maths. And so the the random function will return a number between zero and one. And so you you say there's a seventy eight percent chance of the guy scoring a penalty, um, and then yeah. a little equation equals if the random number is less than 0.78, he yeah, scored. You say it was scored, and if it was more, it was missed. And, that's just, and that's then you all can simply copy that 100,000 times and you've got 100,000 results that you can sum up at the end of it. Yeah, I and mean, sometimes the, the tricky bit is designing the model. I mean, I, I, it took me a little while to, to kind of to, to develop the parameters of a penalty shootout. Um, that, was, that was a little bit tricky, but it wasn't, it wasn't super hard. But basically at the heart of it, every penalty is the RAND function. Yeah, more than 0.78. It's missed and less than 0.78, it's scored. And, that, and that's basically the, the, the how a Monte Carlo will work for, 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 for most situations. Yeah, I agree with you. I think anybody can do a Monte Carlo analysis. I think few people um, either are interested in or have the time and effort to go to mathematical first principles. But when you can have a hundred thousand something happening 100,000 times and add it up... Um, then you kind of don't need to. It's speed and um, um, convenience comes into the Monte Carlo analysis as well, well doesn't it? I mean, that's actually the philosophy behind the book. I know I've put a, a, quite a bit of maths in it, but it's for those, it's, it's to basically to, to, to put the meat on the bones. But I always stress, I've stressed several times in the book, if, if this is not for you and if you, you find yourself turn, turned off by it or just don't get it and just say, oh, this, this is meaningless, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter so long as you understand what the Monte Carlo's doing, that's all you ever need to do. Even if it's for really simple things like a coin toss or, or cards or whatever it might be where there are functions easy to, to, to if, if you don't get them or you don't want to use them, 
just run the Monte Carlo and it'll do, it'll give you the numbers and then and then that provides the intuitive understanding of the distribution and once you've got that intuitive understanding of what the range of possibility for things that happen looks like then you can start to say to yourself oh actually maybe I now want to see what maths is that lies behind that because it's, it's kind of starting it from the opposite direction get get your intuitive understanding sorted out first of what it all actually means about variance and standard deviation and then worry and, about the maths afterwards and if you never want to worry about the maths it doesn't matter and and as you say it's it applies to so many different parts of gambling um from predicting to um staking to winning um and losing so it's it's yeah. got its usefulness in almost every area that we need to focus on indeed yeah Where, wherever there's a <laughs> An issue of uncertainty there's going to be a, a distribution of possible outcomes and where that's the case you can just chuck a monte carlo at it if, if you want to try and analyze what the range is and so it's really dependent on how how wide your imagination is you, you can pretty much apply to anything you can think of one bit of uncertainty i always have with excel is if i've made the model a little bit too complicated or i've run too many um simulations of the monte carlo and excel will freeze up how much time do you give to it before you press Control Alt Delete and go and break a window, um, or do you find that you can code things pretty, you know, accurately and that doesn't happen to you? Well, the way I run my simulations is, I mean, I don't do any programming behind. I just use the Excel's functionality, which I've described in one of the chapters. Um, so it's really basic. My Excel programming skills are about zero. So if I can do it, anyone can do it. But what I would normally do is if I've got a pretty big spreadsheet. I mean, the more data you've got that you're trying to, to to model. So, for example, just if it was just, you know, 20 bets and I wanted to see the range of wins and losses, I, I could do a massive Monte Carlo in no time. But if I'm using my wisdom of the crowd's betting history, which has got 14,000 bets in it, then each simulation is going to take longer. So what I would normally do in that case is I will just do a simple simulation of, of 10 runs or maybe 100 runs or whatever it might be, and then I'll time how long it's going to take. And then when I know how long that takes, I'll then say, okay, if I do, if I then want to do 10,000 or 100,000 or a million, how long is that going to take? And then I can work out how long it's going to be before the, the, I get the output. And then I can go away and, I don't know, go for a walk or the cycle or whatever it might be uh, while it's doing its thing. Um, so I'll normally have an idea of how long it's going to take. Um, I have left them running overnight, to be honest, but that was that was for the book. I suppose it's how how important the information is that you want to get out. If it's something you really desperately want to know and you want a really big Monte Carlo to 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 nail down the probabilities and the distribution, then obviously the bigger the better. But you might need to leave it longer. Whereas if you haven't got so much time, then then you'd need to use a smaller one. But I'd always kind of work out how long it's going to take me beforehand. And then obviously, what absolutely you have to do with these things is because they auto update if you press a key um <laughs> yeah you then you can then find yourself oh shit i haven't i didn't save the data i've now got to wait another five hours while it it, it, it like sorts itself out and i don't want to press control alt delete to stop it again so there's two you ways end you up can with either, no hair very quickly you can either copy paste the data quick uh, but before you do anything else and then it's, it's all right <laughs> or you can disable the uh, the i think it's the, the manual I think you, you you change it from auto to manual or something in the in the Excel options, and then it won't it won't auto update. But then of course, if you forget to turn it back on again, you then are doing other things with other Excel formula, and then you think, why isn't it? Why aren't they working? Why am yeah. I not getting the right answers? Because because you've turned it off. 
the RAM function will uh, export exactly the same number for every simulation. It's like, oh, there's a 100% chance of this happening. Yeah, exactly. So you just got to remember you've, you've, you've done that if you do that. I, I tend to That's just very copy and paste the data somewhere else, and then it's, it's saved as like a, a set of text. I need to be more disciplined, it sounds like. I go straight for the 100,000 and then just end up getting very frustrated when it locks up and I don't know if it's coming back or if it has properly frozen. I've, I'm I'm that sad that I've run too many to, to know that you can end up <laughs> waiting hours or not knowing how long it's going to take and getting frustrated. So I'll always, if I know it's going to be potentially a big one, I will do a small one first and test how long it takes and then just basically scale it up. You spoke about the wisdom of the crowds um, methodology. Um um, and I wanted to come back to that. So you run football-data.co.uk. Um, That's right, yeah. Uh, is that right? The, I've got that URL correct. Yeah. Oh, well, that was my um, first site back from 2001. That was a, that's where I started from, basically, pretty much. So I take it you, well, I'm going to, were you collecting data and you just wanted to make it available or what was the concept? Yeah, yeah. I, 1997, um, funnily enough, um, the, the chap who got me inspired in this right back from 90, 1989, 1990, a chap called Patrick um, Veach, who is big, big man in horse racing, who people who follow horse racing will know all about. One um, of the biggest winners um, ever, right? Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen him for, what is it now, Twenty, probably 25 years. Is it like you were at quite, Cambridge quite, University studying maths yeah. at the same time? Yeah. He, well, I wasn't doing maths, but he, he was, yeah. Um, okay. He quite coincidentally just got in touch with me this week just to, to say, how are you doing? Um, just by email. Um, so just that completely out of the blue, quite bizarrely. Um, but anyway, yeah, so the so one day in 97, I was thinking about him and what he'd done in racing, and I thought, oh, I, I – I don't care about racing. I'm not interested, but I do like football. So I wonder what I could, whether I could repeat his success in football. So I started collecting data and started messing around with systems and spent a few years with that and never really got very far. Just kind of broke even. It was about the best I could do in, in four years. And, and back in 97, how do you collect data? Because obviously it's a lot easier in 2021. There's a lot of information out there, but it's not the same in 1997, is it? Well, you obviously could get football results. Um, and there was a website called Mabel's Tables as well um, that provided betting odds from the five main UK bookmakers. I think it was like Labrooks, William Hill, Coral, maybe Tote. I can't remember the other one. Um, and so I was just using that data to, for my own systems. And then in, in, so in 2001, after I was getting a bit despondent, thinking oh, I can't do much better than break even, um, maybe I could just start up a little hobby stroke business selling this data. So on one of the betting forums, I think it was punterslounge.com, I just asked the question, I said, would people use this data? And if so, how much would they be prepared to pay? And the general consensus would, was about a tenner, maybe, as a one-off fee. So that's how it started. So I set up the site, collected the data, the data and, and started making it available. So that's kind of how where it all started in 2001 with football data. And how did this progress into the wisdom of the crowds theory? Well, blind me. Oh, just again, spending years and years just messing around with ideas and systems and, and looking at the, the, uncovering the favorite long shot bias. Well, I, I didn't uncover it. It was already known, but I kind of came to it not knowing that other people had, had found it. And then from there, you know, looking at different bookmakers and their overrounds and then slowly realizing that 
about a bookmaker called Pinnacle Sports um, was more odds efficient or had more odds that were reflective of true prices, shall we say, than anything else. And and then it, I realized that you, you could make a system out of this potentially if you figured out a way of removing their margin by taking into account the favorite long shot bias. You could then bet other bookmakers prices when they were greater than the pinnacle implied true price. Um, of course, so sadly, is, sorry, go on. Sorry. Yeah. Okay, so this underpins a lot of um, what we've um, what, what we've done at Bookie Bashing, which is that look, um, one way of coming up with a fair price is modelling it yourself, looking at um, uh, historical XG and everything like that. But we can also piggyback on top of some smart people, people like That's Pinnacle, and exactly just remove right. them, remove the margin, and we sort of have where they started from. That we, we've sort of we've we, we piggybacked on their numbers if we do that, haven't we? Exactly. I mean, I, I took the view after years and years of basically failing at my own attempts to model and find true the expected value. I thought, what if we use the bookmakers? What if we use the best bookmaker and see where we go with that? So it was basically me eating humble pie saying, look, I can't do it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use someone else's model and see what we find. The, the, the sad aspect of this is, is this all came after... I'd already been limited by by most UK bookmakers for for kind of a, what I was using as a precursor system to Wisdom of the Crowds. It was kind of exploiting the favourite long shot bias, and it, it focused on very short prices. Um, but mm. it was really just it was what I realised afterwards is that that system was just kind of a subset of what became Wisdom of the Crowds. Um, and sadly, by the time I had Wisdom of the Crowds, and it was clearly a, a winning system. I was already limited by pretty much all the UK bookmakers I could use. So yeah. it was more, it became for me just more as a, as a way of showing people how you could do it, but obviously mm. warning them if you don't take steps like I didn't really sufficiently enough um, to disguise what you're doing, however you choose to do it, um, you're going to find yourself limited and, and have to take your business elsewhere to places where you won't be able to explore this system. Yeah, of course. Um, uh, so that that's really interesting concept that we, we start off with um, Pinnacle's original lines, and essentially you're looking at other bookmakers. Are you priced up higher than what we think that Pinnacle think are the fair odds? And of course, you can't you can't precisely say what Pinnacle started with because bias is a little bit of mathematics and then a little bit of science, a little bit of art as well. Um, yeah. sort of working out where they've applied it. So Fave Longshot, um, you've written about before. And, um, I think you have an article at Pinnacle, which is really interesting to go and read, um, which essentially along the concept of the way psychology works in betting. People are, um, um, if, there's a, if um, there's a bet at one to 10, to win a thousand pounds, you would need to put 10,000 on it. And if it was 10 to one, £200,000, you need to put £100 on it. Now, a lot of people are happy to place £100, but not happy to place £10,000. Yeah, that's basically the sum of it. Um, and and, and so course, the well, bookmakers apply their margin on the side where people are happy to stake higher. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yes, basically, or disproportionately higher than the, the numbers would imply. So whether, mm -hmm. I mean, there's all sorts of theories and ideas about favourite long shot bias, and some of them are demand side in the, in the sense it's driven by what how punters behave in their psychologies and others are supply side and, and it's driven by 
what the bookmakers are doing and, and what liabilities they face. I, I kind yeah. of happen to think that it's probably a, a complex mix of the two. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I'm really keen and I like the idea put forth, I think it was by a, a scientist or a mathematician at Southampton University, whereby bookmakers basically, they, they do what they, they, they skew the market with this bias, essentially because they know they can get away with it. And I think where, where there are situations where the bookmakers know that they can do this and exploit punters' mm. disposition for bias, they will do it knowing that they can increase their profit margin over and above what would be implied by their, their book margin. Um, it's just if they know they can do yeah. it, they will do it. So I think that's kind of a really well, intuitive you, you would You would do it if you were there, them, wouldn't you? Well, just exactly. maximizing, wouldn't you? yeah. Wouldn't you? Um, whether they came at this with full knowledge of the psychology or whether it's it's just mm. kind of evolved over the, over time with more and more work from the likes of Daniel Kahneman revealing yeah. all of these biases and so on. I, it's difficult to know. Maybe mm. the, 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 the on-course bookmakers who started out back in the day, mm -hmm. they just had this kind of intuitive understanding of how punters were behaving and they didn't know any of the psychology and the, and the, and the maths behind it and the probability. Mm -hmm behind it but it, they just had this kind of intuition this is what was going on and over time the theories have developed on the back of the behavior but i don't know no that's just a guess we stumbled across it uh, almost a perfect example of it um recently so you have football coupons and shops which are just lists of games with various markets that you can bet on um and what we do is we take those football coupons and we work out what we think the fair odds are in a lot of the markets that you know, we have to sort of um, build up these markets ourselves. So we're working out um, win both halves ourselves and things like that. And one of them we looked at was um, both teams to score in the first half. Generally, it's about five to one that they will, one to five that they won't. And um, we ran the coupon through our model. And when we ranked the EV um, um, as when it came out of the model, I was amazed to see that it was almost perfectly all of the no's at the top of the table were value or were higher value anyway. They weren't all plus EV, but they were higher value. And all the yeses were at the bottom. And it was sort of evident from this that all the margin is being applied to the four to one to the five to one for the event to happen because that's what people are betting on and nobody's betting on the no um, at yeah. one to five. I'm not um, slightly bit surprised by any of that. Which unfortunately sort of um what whilst say well the values at one to five, that adds in a little bit of complication of PTL limits on coupons are exactly the same whether you're betting to a twenty thousand pound liability or a two hundred pound liability. They're what they're worried about is how much they take over the counter as a backstake, not what the liability is, meaning when all the odds are one to five, one to six, even if they're plus EV, we're not going to be able to be staking enough on them to make them worthwhile. Um and then the other one I don't have any, any evidence for, but I was just thinking about the other day. I saw that Fallon Sherrick was the favourite in the darts to win her match. And I was just mulling over. I'm almost certain everybody's betting on her, despite the fact that she is uh, four to six and the other guy is six to four, because everyone wants to see an unusual event such as Fallon beating a man at the darts. And which match was it? Was it Peter Wright? It wasn't Peter Wright, was it? It, it wasn't Peter Wright in the quarters because he was the favourite there. It was possibly her first favorite. round against the big guy, John Henderson, um, someone like that. Um, she, it wasn't 
massive favourite and massive outsider. And so perhaps you could argue that there is no bias when they're both competitors are close to evens, except I'm just certain that all the recreational money is coming in for her because everyone wants to see it. And it but I think that's, that's part that's, of the... Well, you could say what you're saying is it was a little bit like um, the Mayweather-McGregor fight. But I think that would be doing uh, Falak a disservice because she's actually really, really good. And her the yeah. sex doesn't really come into it. I guess it only comes into it in the sense that traditionally women haven't played darts. So there's just not enough of them getting to that level of, of ability. Um, but there's no reason why a woman can't be a world champion and be a multiple world champion. And she might be the one to do it. Um, she's actually really, really good at darts. So I think there's possibly a little bit of, I know, freak show money in there. So maybe the bookmakers have taken so much on her because that's what people want to see. Then they have to change their lines a little bit to, to protect against their, their liabilities, I suppose, in the same way with what would have happened with McGregor and, and Mayweather. But did you, but did you bet case, on think, the, did you bet on McGregor Mayweather yourself? I wouldn't bet on such a thing like that. I mean, it's just, it's a random coin flip. And um, I know, I know people it's, it's, would say it's the biggest EV thing in history. I probably, mm. I probably, that's what I would have done if I, if I was obviously bet on, on Mayweather, it's just a no brainer, but it's just it, because it's just a freak show. It's like the betting on the Grand National, betting on you know just just these one-off events. It's just well, like, I'm not at the do time, it. my concern was it was a bit like betting on WWE. I wasn't a hundred percent sure that a script wasn't lying in the background, sort of saying, you know, well, that, that's down exactly in round it. one. And, that's exactly yeah. it. There's all there's all sorts of unknowns and uncertainties with this. It's just I'm not going to allow myself to either win or lose start creating a narrative that has no basis in reality as with any ev better it's all about the process and not the outcome and with a with a bet like that regard what, what, what depending on what the outcome is you're you're so likely to then do a, a post hoc analysis and create a narrative that isn't actually real and just to support what 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 outcome you saw whether it was a win or lose and i'm just i'm not not doing yeah. it but it, it, obviously it was a an ev bet but I just thought I'm not. I'm not even going there. There's no point. It's just a freak show. Oh, it's also very easy for the smart money to now say it was the easiest bet in the world after 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 the event of a one-off event. You know what I mean? It's like let's yeah, run yeah. Um, McGregor Mayweather a uh, hundred thousand times through a Monte Carlo simulation and see if uh, and see if it was really the the best bet of all time. Yeah. So as mentioned, um, your fave long shot theory was on Pinnacle. You've got quite a few articles up there. I like um, the Pinnacle articles because they're the best thing I think that um, the the sports gambling world has to a sort of reputable academic journal. Um, there's a lot of nonsense um, around, especially on Twitter, from people that generally don't know what they're talking about. And um, there's not a lot of peer-reviewed studies that people want to go into. But Pinnacle is certainly a source um, um, where you can go there and you know that the article is accepted, peer-reviewed, and um, um, so on and so forth. Peer-reviewed, I'd say. That's that's a bit of a stretch to call it peer-reviewed, but I know where you're coming from. I know what you're saying. Um, uh, how many articles do you have up there, roughly? You might not know off the top of your head. And why do you sort of feel the need to to sort of target Pinnacle and publish a lot of information that perhaps other sharp bettors would be thinking, keep that to yourself. Don't let everybody know about that. Um, I suppose for me, it doesn't really matter because I'm not a sharp better. Um, <laughs> I, I'm a sharp analyst of sharp betting, but I'm not a sharp better. So I guess it doesn't matter. I guess I, I did. I've, I've got about 60 or so maybe 
over the because I've done it about five years. I, I originally was asked by uh, what was her name? Da, da, uh, Daniel oh, Safridi. She was the previous, I've forgotten her first name. Um, she was the content uh, advisor or, or content manager of Pinnacle. And she, she asked me back in 2016, or maybe even 15, and I said, look, no, I'm not doing it. I'm writing my book at the minute, which was the Squares and Sharps book. I'll come back to you when that's done. And so a year later, that's what I did. And I kind of wrote one or two, and then it, it just took off from there. And then I was just doing one a month. And um, I got no real reason why. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Just fun, I suppose. Just fun to put down ideas. Um, you're right. Maybe these things should be um, kept to oneself. Obviously, Pinnacle's motivation is, I suppose, to to demonstrate themselves as the as the sharp person's sharp book and so they they advertise themselves as, as people that know what they're doing and they're they're willing to to share the methods and the means with other people and of course they're, they're the bookmaker that will welcome winners so if if people learn from what they're putting out and they win then they accept that with open arms and use they use their data so, and their so methods to improve their lives yeah, we're not going to see um, shop versus recreational models on Skybet anytime soon, are we? I wouldn't have thought so, but then that's it's not in their interest. They don't they don't need to be doing that because their their motivation is just to advertise promotions, um, free bets, and money back guarantees, that sort of thing, and then state limit or restrict or ban those that know how to do it consistently. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if anyone wants to go have go and have a look, um, you've got um, uh, meet under meet the authors in Pinnacle. It's got all um, Joseph's articles, and each and every one of them is interesting. I think there's a skill in getting across relatively complicated statistical subjects where the reader can um, sort of read it quite easily, and that's something that um, I, you get across very well. Um, oh, it's um, funny you say that. Some people say that. Other people have said. Far too difficult what you're saying, and you ramble on, and I don't know what you're talking <laughs> okay. about. And I had this the other day. Funnily enough, I mm. did a completely unrelated topic. I was because I used to work in the environmental sector. I was a climate change specialist, and I did a, a local science talk on climate change and Earth history. So what, not so much what's going on now, but just throughout the geological um, eras and epochs. And it went on for about an hour and a half. And at the end, I think the, the people were just like oh my God, what's just hit me? And I thought, I'd originally thought that this was a talk to, to a group of pre-clued up scientists, you know, that had obviously left their field, but they're all scientists in one form or another. And, and I, I, I've got to make sure that I actually deliver something that isn't too simple, but I completely yes, missed yeah. it. So oh, I no. rambled and rambled and rambled. And at the end, it was like, they were all going, what just hit us? <laughs> Oh, so it was a I tumbleweed that blew across the, reverse. the Yeah, so it just um, sometimes I, I can get it wrong, definitely. So hopefully <laughs> I haven't done with but, this book. I mean, I, I said at the beginning of this book, it's like I appreciate that some people will just put this aside after a couple of pages and think, what on earth is all this about? I can't get through this. And then there'll be others that will go, this is all far too simple. What This is a total waste of time. Why did I buy the book? So hopefully there'll be some in the middle that um, will get it, and there'll be even those at either side will appreciate what I've tried to do and, Maybe I've missed the mark for some of them, but hopefully for others, it, 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 there'll be something in there that will be of use. 
certainly my take from it definitely would be if you have not tried these Monte Carlo sims in Excel, they're not as difficult as they sound and they have all the uses that you've gone through. No. Um, Once you've done one, book, if you do one, yeah, then you realize, wow, that, that's what they do. That's what they do. That's what I'm seeing. That's what I get out of it. Now I can go and think of more ideas of what I can use it for. So once you've seen what it does and you realize oh, that's really easy, then it's just you're, you're only limited by your imagination. Exactly. And I think if you read the book and don't try and do one, then you're probably going to be lost or be putting it down after. Yeah, definitely. Just go and do one, even if it's a simple exactly. one. Even if, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, on, on the papers I was having a look at, there's this um, International Journal of Forecasting. Um, uh, hopefully you might recognize this because they referenced you. Um, this is... Boshnikov, Karat, and McHale from the School of Mathematics, University of Manchester, and from Business School, University of Salford. They talked about a bivariate viable count model for forecasting associations football scores. Um, are you familiar with that paper? I'm not familiar with that. I'm trying to imagine okay. what they referenced. <laughs> okay. They were, essentially, they just said they got the data from you. They said it was from oh, football okay. data. So it's data, data it's not, not published work. Yeah, but I'm, in I'm, your... I'm, it, in your book, um, you, um, you you sort of touch on and then you sort of walk away from um, a lot of um, more advanced modelers in football are, are not using a Poisson distribution. Um, uh, and a Poisson distribution, for anyone that sort of needs to know, is you, you would take a mean. For example, Burnley would have a mean of 2.3 goals in this game. And from that mean, you can calculate the probability of them having 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And from that, you can build up a lot of stuff. Now, it's a very simplified way of doing it there's a lot more that needs to come into the analysis and um you suggested the viable um uh probability distribution in your book is it something that you've tried to apply to football yourself or are you just aware that other people are using it with some success definitely the latter absolutely the latter my, my skills are not good enough um i've seen it used i've seen it written about talked about um mm -hmm. No, I haven't. I've only just used Poisson and, and then simple regression and things like that. But Weibull is, I believe, is a continuous distribution. So how you apply it to discrete data, I'm not entirely sure. But um, I put it in there, yeah, partly and, and then didn't expand on it, partly because I haven't expanded upon it and I don't know much about yeah. it. And secondly, because there's others that are much better at it than I am and... <laughs> And they can talk about it. And then for those that are reading it, it's a, it's a route into exploring something new for themselves. So, yeah, it, 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 you see how the, the basic principles work with Poisson and the Dixon-Cole model for, 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 yes. for, for predicting gold. Yeah. Get your head around that. Then you can take those principles and use them with other models. And there's a little bit more advanced. Out there. Um, Andy Mack, I think, with his ex, ex, forecasting models in Excel. Yeah, I noted I noted that down as I went through the book that that's something I wanted to pick up next. Yeah, and there's also there's the Canadian I forget his his name, but his Twitter handle is plus EV Analytics. He's he does mm -hmm. a lot of modeling, and he's I think he's running a course right now on on Bayesian um, forecasting techniques for, for sports mm -hmm. betting. And guys like that, I mean, they're 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 the true sharps in terms of actual betting, and 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 they they're worth following and worth reading their material, and you can learn a lot from from them. That's Andy Mack and Plus EV Analytics, yeah? That's, that's right, yeah. So what I know from um, following sort of modeling over 2.5 and looking at correct score markets is Poisson 
is guilty of not accounting for underdisposition and overdisposition. Um, meaning, when we draw our histogram, our likely number of goals in the match zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, right in the middle, um, Poisson um, accommodates equally dispersed data. So it is quite good at uh, predicting the average, but at the tails of the histogram, there's something going on in football. And in my head, it's something along the lines of there are teams that the longer the match stays nil-nil, the more they're likely to park the bus. There's something, they're, they're not risk takers. And so mathematical modeling needs to account a little bit better for nil-nil is more likely to be nil-nil the longer the match goes on. And Poisson doesn't do that. And possibly there's something going on with 3-3 and high scoring games as well that the more goals there are there are more likely there are to be more goals and it's this, it's this additional bit of information that comes into the viable analysis which I, I haven't built a model for but the thing that i've taken from your from your book and i've written down is that i'm going to go away and try and do one so that's my oh, job that's, uh, that's brilliant yeah uh, that i've taken from i'm it. guessing the 3-3 the three, three, I, I seem to remember years ago decades ago bookmakers were getting hammered on the 3-3 three, three. Um, they were offering odds that were, were were too long. Maybe that's the reason why that they were using just standard Poisson models or something similar. And other more sophisticated punters knew better and were back in these three threes and were, were, were doing well. And of course, that changed ultimately when the bookmakers wise up to it. They realised and they changed. I'd never heard that. Do you know how long ago balls. that was? Oh, blimey! It was before, well, not before my time, but before my time in this in this world. Um, right. Okay. I mean, world of betting, not world of world. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so, so I could go in and maybe 80s, get eighties and ni- early nineties. I think I, I'm guessing two hundred to um, one on a three-three. I remember I, I've read I, up I think about it wasn't how that you know high. it was. They okay. were eighty to ones were being were available. Fifties to ones. Um, yeah. Okay. And, and it, it it was quite. I think it was quite a thing. People were were hammering these things, and they was maybe they they knew more than the bookmakers. And this is yeah you're right. It, it could be that the the root of this was. A reliant over reliance on Poisson. The problem with all of these distributions and Poisson in particular is that the the, the underlying axiom is that all goals are independent of each other in the same way that that uh, roulette mm. spins are independent of each other. Now with roulette, that is indeed true. With goals, that is not true. And so it's possible that these tail issues at the high scoring end um, are to do with the the lack of independence that models like or distributions mm. like Poisson aren't taking into account. One of the facts, I actually went onto your site a couple of years ago and I got all the premiership data and League One, League Two championship. And all I wanted to do was over 10 or 20 years, have a look at high scoring first halves and then have a look at how many goals were in the second half. So if you get these really unlikely score lines at halftime, 4-2, 4-3, you know, huge scoring first halves, Every time you look at the second half, there's all there's always one or two goals. It's never four three in the first half and four three in the second half. And there's something that that mathematical models they can't pick that up. There's no way of sort of saying, well, people are people, the game's done at half time and they've shut up shop. Uh, or well, perhaps there is a way of doing it. We don't know about it, and the people that do know about it are making some money. Well, I guess you're right. Yeah, if if there's a score is four three at the first half, um, if true independence was applicable so like what happens in the first half is it doesn't define what happens in the second half you you would expect there to be the same average number of goals in the second half as for any other population yeah. of matches 
if what you're if you're saying is that actually in fact it's significantly lower then it demonstrates that's what i found yeah yeah then it's a lack of a lack of independence i mean it mm. would so it's well, what we're saying is it's not just regression to the mean but there's something more than that and and that's completely mm. understandable you can imagine that that's that that is a, a real thing it's but then it's the problem is developing a model to take those factors into account it's it's not an easy business but then if there's an edge there then it's exploitable and someone might be exploiting it so some the only way you can exploit it is, it, it is, yeah, is exactly. to find yeah. is to find the model that can systematically predict it mm. that's the thing with 3.3, three, um, I remember reading on the Betfair forums, it was a glorious tale of somebody that was recreational but had a large amount of money to their bankroll for whatever reason. And they um, proclaimed that they had the perfect strategy. And the perfect strategy was to lay 3.3. Three. And do you know why that was the perfect strategy? I don't know why. You, is this a rhetorical it, question? Do you know the reason? He did it 200 times and, and it hadn't come in. And so he was saying it was free money. Right. Okay. Um, and he posted his results and he laid 3-3, three, three, um, not for his entire bankroll, but for about a quarter of his bankroll until about the 600th bet. And he'd made £50,000. And then 3-3 three, three happened twice um, or three times in a week and nobody heard from him again. <laughs> right. Well, a cautionary that, story self-explanatory then, isn't it? <laughs> At the, towards the end of the book, you have a cautionary tale on football index, which I have nothing but sympathy for anybody. I wasn't caught in it myself, but um, if, for anyone that does, I've nothing but sympathy for the punter and anger towards the regulator about um, uh, what happened with football index. And I, I picked up a, a sentence that you wrote that I thought was really well delivered. Um, and that's um, um, to do with gambling and the liberalization of gambling and how viewpoints and people look at it in this country and around the world. And you say in its 12 steps, Gamblers Anonymous emphasizes the need to admit wrongdoing and defectiveness of character. And you argue that risk taking is normalized and hardwired for evolutionary reasons. And so this is maybe an unfair step from Gamblers Anonymous. Um, uh, can you elaborate a little bit more about the thinking behind that? Yeah, I mean, I guess my thinking on this is more um, set out in my previous book, Squares and Charts, where I do go into a, a lot more of the psychology and the philosophy of gambling and why people gambling, why, why people gamble, and, and the neurochemistry as well. And I very much took, took the view, which I've always kind of had, but it was I espoused it more through the research I did for the last book, in that if, if we try and verbally punish or verbally prohibit people from indulging in what's perfectly natural behaviours, we're not likely to solve problems that we want to solve, like like addiction. Um, I, I would say the same thing, for example, with when we talk about racism. I know it's a completely different topic, but until we until we say until we stop beating people up for being racist, and this is not to to, to um, accept that racism is acceptable, it's not. It's not. But until we accept that we all have dispositions for certain behaviours, we're never going to properly address how we deal with the, with those behaviours when they become um, when they become what we might call egoistic or or 
or maladaptive for not just individuals but for society as a whole. So with regard to gambling, um, well, with regard to racism, it's no good just calling out people being racist because it's not likely to make them feel like they want to be less likely to be racist. They're just going to dig their their, their feet in and say, I'm on the defence. I don't like being criticised and I'm. it's not likely to, to improve their behaviour. And the same with, with gambling. I think if you if you make people feel like they shouldn't be doing indulging in this thing because it's somehow it's somehow immoral or it's it's somehow it's not right to be profiting from other people's misfortune it, through through games of chance or even if through games of skill where you've got an advantage that you've developed through your intelligence and someone who isn't as intelligent you're exploiting them i think it's not i don't i don't believe in all of that philosophy i think it's much more constructive and positive to actually look at the reasons why we indulge in this behavior, the, the, genet the genetic reasons, the, the neurochemical reasons, and why we're drawn to risk-taking, and what benefits it serves for, for people as human beings. And for me, very much in, in, the, in the last book, I, I tried to develop the idea that, that learning how to think probabilistically rather than deterministically, and, and you can gain that, that, that skill in probabilistic thinking through through a knowledge of gambling, through an act of partaking in gambling to a greater or lesser extent, and understanding it through it like the skin in the game, it's you get a much more rewarding outcome, and you take you start to develop a different view about gambling, rather than the, the one that is often espoused in society today, which is there's, there's something of the night about gambling. It's I think someone said to me on Twitter yesterday is that when I when I tell people that I I bet for a living, they, they give me this look as if I've somehow burgled their house. And there's that kind of, there's this pervasive underlying current, which is historical and and cultural, going back centuries and generations. And I very much rally against it because I don't think it's constructive and I don't think it's positive. So whether I've been eloquent enough in describing that kind of thinking in the book, in this book at the end, I, I don't know. Um, but. But that's my thing. Yeah, no, is, no good not... comes out of telling anyone you're a gambler or a professional gambler at a party. Little zero good will come out of that. It's always better to say you're a financial analyst and bore them away from the conversation or something. I would always say um, I'm, a, I'm a gambler and I've been lucky. Even like with my <laughs> I do investments on the stock market, it's like I'm basically mm -hmm. just gambling because I haven't. I, I'm not. I'm not one of these super sharps. I'm just not. So I, I everything that I've done, I would say I humbly say it's probably just all luck. That I've done quite well in it. I've just targeted the right things at the right time, and I've been lucky. Um, I think it's it's, so, it's it's worth just eating humble pie most most of the time with with your investments and your and your risk taking. And so, but this is the the politic the politicization of um of of gambling seems to completely ignore the other areas of investment. Anybody can uh, spend any amount of money on a buy to let property. Um, you can buy as much cryptocurrency as you want. And whether these should be regulated or not regulated, well, the, the way I see it, it's not a separate uh, argument from gambling. If you're going to start constraining what people can spend money on, you have to look at the entire picture. But it isn't going to be looked at because there is this gambling has always been something apart from from other forms of, of financial investment or financial speculation. And it's again i've set all this a lot of this out in the previous mm -hmm. book there's a lot of cultural reason there's a lot of mm -hmm. um historical um, context to this a lot of religious context to this 
uh, it goes back centuries and, 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 that, and that's why in some cases. and that's why America have gone through a completely different path to the UK America the home of poker and card games and gambling and the Mississippi Mississippi steamboats and then you fast forward to the 2010s and um uh 95 percent of the state's um sports betting is illegal because of the different historical religious backgrounds that have sort of come through the republican party and they want to control how people you know live their life through morals and that's what it that's what it all comes down to at the end of the day I think that's that, that is right. What I, what I did want to say just before was I'm not trying to underplay the the need to protect people um, who have a disposition to to, to play excessively, mm-hmm. but there's, I think there's means and ways of doing it that that don't impact so much the vast majority that don't have those dispositions. And yeah, to repeat again, I'm I'm. I don't know whether the right phrase is half, I'm half glass full in the sense I'd rather I'd rather take a positive view about the, the, the good things that can come from thinking thinking about gambling and, and, and having how, how gambling can help you think in ways that are beneficial to your life more generally. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, for me, I would use it as a vehicle to 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 detach people from conspiracy thinking, for example. If that could mm-hmm. be done, you know, if I were to run a, a course on psychology and, and helping people to whatever it might be in life. And the same one of my topics was co- the, the dangers of conspiracy thinking. And I would I would use the, the vehicle of gambling and probability and variance and so on to do that and, and go through all the, the topics about how we're easily drawn to patterns and look for causes and so on. And gambling and probability is a really, really useful way. To, to deliver that those lessons i think and i'd rather look at the positives than just constantly labeling this thing as deviant and that there are deviant actors in this world that are simply looking to exploit those the, the victims who can't help themselves it's just such a negative narr- narrative um, that's and that's not to say that, he... that, that, that negative things aren't happening but but yeah. there's, there's too much focus on on its. I suppose it's what Nassim Taleb would call the the dictatorship of the small minority. So it, the, the agenda is just being driven by a tiny minority of vocal interests that are looking to help a tiny minority of of individuals, and they're they're being labelled by the activists uh, in a sense as victims. And I just think this is so unhelpful, mm. and it ultimately isn't going to deliver what you want to deliver. And I don't I don't doubt their you know their motives i'm sure they've, they've got solid reasonable motives for what they want to achieve but i don't believe it's going to work it will just push everything somewhere else for example they'll you'll go to football index and then they'll be yeah. cries that well that's because it wasn't regulated so they'll go somewhere else they'll go to nfts or they'll go to cryptocurrency or they'll go to day trading or they'll go to something completely different and then that will have to be regulated and that will and that will have to be prohibited and that will have to be banned and it, instead of just yeah coming it from the other way saying let's just look at why we do these things and stop t- telling us that we're bad for doing them and just try and learn techniques to 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 rape to, to pull in or rein in the excesses where we think they might they might be happening but actually see these things as really positive behaviors for what they are 
yeah, it's very difficult, I think, for for me and possibly for you to to comment in an unbiased manner, and because we're slightly conflicted because we're within the industry and we sort of rely on the industry being healthy to have an income. Um, and oh, so anybody outside yeah. of this argument might might sit throw that at us. And so I try and look at it from the opposite viewpoint. And I think I, I would argue this: if someone can just put the data down in front of me and say that. Single customer views, sources wealth, um, restricting everybody to maximum two pound bet will save X, Y, Z, and we we were certain of this. It will save lives. It will stop suicides. It will stop um, um, millions of people falling into poverty. Then I would be happy to step back and go. I had my fun, but my fun is not as important as the overall health of the nation. And my biggest worry is that that part of the argument doesn't exist. It, 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 it hasn't been put in front of us because it doesn't exist. Um, um, but in America, weirdly, they banned gambling everywhere, but um, the Republicans make sure that everybody has the right to own 17 guns per person. And we stand in this country and we look at them and go, the whole world knows if you ban guns, there will be fewer deaths. We all know this and you don't do it. And... I, I do hope that we're not sitting here and everyone's saying the whole world knows that if we restricted everyone to a pound per month um, spending on gambling, then there would be fewer deaths. And we're not wrong, um, if you know what I mean. And that, that it, there is no truth behind that. But just now, I, I personally don't believe that there is. No, I'd be I'd, I'd agree with you. I'd also be slightly worried in equating guns with gambling, which I know is not what you were trying to do. Um, yeah, yeah. I've got, I'm sorry, I've got a little bit extreme because it's easy yeah. to see the harm. Yeah, I guess I, um, my my, sorry, my concern on. is, I suppose, if if we're really concerned about public health, there really are much bigger fish fish to fry than mm. than people who are having a bet. Um, we've got a we've got a diabetes epidemic in this country and in the Western world. No one's talking about um, single customer view with regards going to supermarkets and mm. buying food that will contribute towards the risk of having diabetes or having high blood pressure or high cholesterol or early death from heart attack. No one's talking about that. No one's talking about centralization of medical data, BMI data, uh, family history of blood pressure and cholesterol. We, we wouldn't dream of doing those things. Um, now you might say, well, with gambling, it's we're not we're, it's not it's, we're not talking about that, that to that extent, um, and it's it's cost benefit thing whereby it's a no brainer that we can do this, and the majority of people won't be affected. But it's like you say, show me the data that the majority won't be affected mm -hmm. by this call for um, minimum two pound stakes. Clearly, people who make their living, I know there's not many, but there's probably just as many people who make their living from betting as who, if not more, uh, than um, gambling addicts, they will be affected, potentially. They won't be allowed to, to bet their turnover anymore. Um, so, yeah, show, show me the data instead of, instead of the rhetoric that we see. Or, yeah. For example, Duncan Smith saying that there's 55,000 online gambling adults aged 11 to 16 but mm. they're not allowed to open accounts so where have you got those figures from 
I'd like to see the yeah. figures. And, and why weren't they just shut down immediately when they were found? So that after they were found to be 11 to 16, there should be zero, you would think. You know? I mean, you might say, well, it just shows you how corrupt the, the gambling industry is. Well, mm-hmm. I might then say, if the Gambling Commission knew that bookmakers were, were, to, were not closing down these accounts, they would be fine to have their license revoked. You know, we, have, we do already, despite some of the failings of the Gambling Commission, we do have a pretty heavily regulated industry in this country, which is one of the reasons why a lot of offshore firms just can't compete here. Mm. So it's a null so, argument. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Not, I'm, not, I'm not. Obviously, I'm not against helping people that need help. But I am against I am against affecting the majority for the for the small benefits of what some people perceive as the minority being victims. I think if it, if it's disproportionate, then it's not acceptable. In the same way that stopping someone going to a supermarket and buying a bottle of wine because they've already had ninety units this week would be unacceptable. Mm-hmm. It's just unacceptable. Yeah. And that's the whole concept of the liberal society. We'll step in and help when there are people that need would they need the help. But for the vast majority, if you want to drink three bottles of wine throughout the 31 days of December, that is your right. Indeed. And whilst it may be controversial, I'm very much a believer in let people make mistakes and learn from them. Mm. We don't we don't need a nanny holding our hands to do that. And I know it sounds it sounds a bit callous because some people used to say some people aren't intelligent enough to learn from their mistakes. And I would say you're not the one to help them. You're you're well, you're not the one to hold their hand and lead them the way you want them to be led. Right. I, I guess there's no easy answers. I mean, there's like with everything, the no. question is more important than the yeah. answers. It's there's no right or wrong here. Mm. Um, and I, I'm not I'm, I very much don't want to seem that I'm completely on one side of the argument here. I, I do understand the, the significance of some of these issues, but I just yeah. take a different view of how you go about trying to solve them. Mm-hmm. I'm not convinced that what I would call the more pro- prohibition led um, tactics. And I know they deny that they're prohibitionists, but that's how I see it. Prohibition on advertising, for example. I'm just not convinced that this will have any effect. I mean, it may limit gambling addictions potentially. Um, it was push them somewhere else. You know, of everything's course. always pushed somewhere so. else. If you push, if you stop people doing one thing, they'll just go and find someone else to entertain themselves, and then you've got another problem. Instead of coming it from the other end, saying, "Why do we like these things?" and "What happens when we do them too much?" Um, Joe, to, uh, I think we aimed for twenty minutes, so I think it's brilliant that we're still sat here an hour and ten minutes later. I think well, it's this been is what great. My climate talk, I just went on and on and on and on. <laughs> yeah. Although um, I'm sure people have found it enthralling and aren't just sat with the tumbleweed going through at the end of that. Terrifies me that idea that um, of your climate change talk. Um, for the end of this, um, for everyone that comes on, a very short um, um, quiz. I've got three topics. I'm going to let you pick one. OK, I've got a Olympics quiz, a geography quiz or a mathematics quiz. Uh, and you can enter the leaderboard of guests on the Bashcast if you uh, if you get any right. So which would you like to go for? Jesus, um, I might be OK on all of them, but I don't know. Geography, go on. OK, you're going geography. Yeah. <laughs> OK, there are, I think, someone's argued that there aren't, but I'm just going to say that there are. There are 
and you have 30 seconds to name as many as you can. Five capital cities across Europe that begin with the letter B. Can you name them all? Berlin, Brussels. Oh. Bond won't count That's anymore, two. will it? No, um, not anymore. Four, by the way, is the high score on this quiz, to let you know. You're uh, 15 oh. seconds to go. Bogota is not in Europe, is it? Bogota, no. Um, honeymoon then. Um, You're five seconds. Belfast, does that count? No, it's an independent yeah, municipal part. They of, might disagree. You know, <laughs> okay. Do you know what? I'm going to give you half a point for Belfast. You've got Berlin, Brussels, and you've got Belfast. And that puts you in third place on the uh, geography leaderboard out of four people that have done the quiz. So you're not bottom, so that's something to take out of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, if I am bottom, it begins with a B, so that's all right. Oh, well, there you go. You can have that. So there's an extra point. Joe, I, I thought that was brilliant. Um, the book... Just out of interest, uh, Monty... what were the other ones? Right, okay. Now you're testing me. Bratislava. Oh, of course, yeah. And there's two that sound very similar to each other. Bucharest. Of course. And Budapest. And Bucharest. And yeah. I think why I like the quiz yeah. is people merge Bucharest and Budapest into the same place. So you get one, but you don't get the other one. But you got neither, so that doesn't count. <laughs> Um, it was a disaster. I should have known those. I, I, I should have got four, definitely. If you come on again, and I hope you do, maybe if you write another book next year, um, we'll see how you do on the maths quiz. Um, Monte Carlo or Bust, available from the 3rd of December, I think. 2nd of second, December, you second, said, sorry. I think it's 2nd, unless it's changed. Yeah. From Amazon and on Kindle. I recommend getting it. I recommend on the first chapter having a go at just one Monte Carlo analysis on Excel. Just get one under your belt, because from that point onwards, the rest of the book will flow and unlimited opportunities will come you, your way. Um, so, Joe, thank you very much for coming on to the Bashcast uh, this afternoon. Thanks for inviting me, Thomas. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>